We are in Psalm 5, and so let's read that. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them, sing, let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. As we begin here, let's pray. Um, and I also want to mention um, Steve Whitaker as we pray. He uh, had a fall this week and is in the hospital. Um, so if we could consider that and keep him in prayer throughout our week as you think about him, um, just remember our brother. Uh, one of the prayers for him is just prayer for wisdom. Um, he lives at home alone, so um, just prayer for guidance and to what type of care he should have in the future here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are good to us, that you've given us a song to sing, Lord. You've filled our hearts with joy as we've seen your wondrous works, Lord. This morning, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see what you, your words have to say to us, that we would receive them and that we would grow in grace, Lord. We do remember our brother Steve. We just ask that you would help him to recover quickly. And I just ask that you would give him and the medical team wisdom uh, as they make decisions for his future care and, and everything involved, Lord. Uh, we just ask that you would guide them. Lord, um, I just ask that in the remainder of this service that your grace would be evident in the word and in the singing and in our time of uh, just catching up with one another even after the service that we would grow together in love and unity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we'll begin this morning uh, by looking at verses 1 through 3 as kind of an introduction to this message. So as he did in Psalms 3 and 4, David here begins with a prayer. And uh, we see in David that same confidence that I mentioned last week as we looked at Psalm 4 in his prayer, uh, that though despite the circumstances, despite his heavy heart, um, he has this hope and confidence in God as he pray prays to him. So even though he's surrounded on every side by enemies and, and it seems kind of like a hopeless situation, David, still in his prayer, uh, has this sense of confidence in who he's praying to. It is possible, um, though the circumstances aren't fully known for the time of this, the writing of this psalm, it is possible that it was during the events of Absalom's coup, but it's not known for certain. Um, the psalms aren't always 
arranged in chronological order. Um, so it's possible that Psalm 5 was part of that time frame, but it's also possible that it was another time in David's life. Um, as I mentioned last week, David has often been surrounded by enemies. He's often been on the run. It's kind of the story of his life. Uh, but either way, whatever the circumstances, David is dealing with the wicked. And so he calls out again in prayer. And I think in this prayer, several points really could be made. Uh, but I think that one thing that really stands out to me is that God will hear the cry of his children. We talked about that last week, but I really think that it bears repeating that God will hear his own. Um, one way that I heard it said, it's like a child with their hand up. You know, if that's not your child, you're probably not really paying attention to why they have their hand up. But if it is your child, you're probably going to, you know, see it and ask, you know, what, what's going on? You know, God always sees us when our hand is up. He always knows when we're crying out to him. So as David is calling out to, to God in prayer, I just want to draw our attention to the language that David uses here. First, he says, give ear to my words. Number two, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. These three phrases show the level of distress that David was in. And so he entreats God to hear his words, the spoken words of his prayer. Next, he asks, God to consider or to perceive what is not clearly spoken, the groanings of his heart, the things that he sort of murmurs or whispers to himself. I don't know if you've ever in prayer not really had words and you just kind of like, ah! God can perceive what that even is. You know, sometimes when Olive is struggling with something, she kind of whimpers. And, you know, I, as a father, can't really make heads or tails of it. You know, I kind of have to sit there and be like, okay, use your words. Let me, let me hear what's going on. She'll kind of whimper and, and make some gruntings. And parents, I know that you're, you're used to that, the sort of indistinguishable noises and grunts that our kids sometimes make when they're frustrated or uh, when, they, when they don't really know what to say. So David is saying here, God, perceive what those noises mean. And the good news is that though we can't make heads or tails of those groanings, even when they're our groanings, God can. He knows your heart even better than you know your heart. So he knows what's going on. The last phrase, he calls on God to pay attention to the sound of his cry. So it's not just the words, it's not just the murmurings and, and uh, grumblings, but he's saying, God, pay attention to the sound of it. Uh, this carries the idea of the loudness and the tone of it. Pay attention to how loud my cry is. Listen to the tone that I'm using. David is telling us through his prayer that it's okay to not have the right words to speak in prayer. And not only that, but it's also okay not to have any words. You know, I think sometimes, especially like in corporate prayer gatherings... We're so concerned, and this is me telling on myself, we're so concerned about how deep our words sound. We're so concerned about, you know, is that like really holy and pious sounding? Did I use enough these and thous in my prayer? Um, I always joke that, you know, if you throw in things like the nations, it usually sounds pretty good and convinces people it's a, it's a deep prayer. But um, you don't have to have the right words. You can literally speak from the heart and even at times just make a noise. God can understand. 
Scripture tells us that his sheep know his voice. Well, the opposite is true as well. The shepherd also knows the sounds of his sheep. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't always work. Depends on how much I'm paying attention. But sometimes in a crowd of kids, I can tell when my daughter says daddy and tell it's her and not one of the other kids saying daddy. I'm used to her tone of voice. God always knows the tone of our voices. And he can tell which child it is that's crying out. David addresses God in this prayer as my king and my God. In this, David's heart is directed to the one who is sovereign over all, including David's kingdom. There's this commentator with the most amazing name, Willem van Gemmeren. I probably did not pronounce that right. A commentator, uh, he regarded this phrase, my God, as the Old Testament equivalent of Abba Father. When your father is the king, you know that you can trust him. You know that he has the authority and the power to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. So verse 3 ends by showing us that as David prays, as Mike said, he watches in expectation. He knows that his father hears him. And what is it that David is praying about and watching in expectation? Well, to see this, uh, let's begin looking at what it is in the rest of this psalm that is distressing David. And our first point this morning is that no one is righteous. It's the wicked who are causing this distress. The injustice that David has seen because of the wicked has caused this indignation to rise up. And so he calls out to the Lord. He takes this this anger that he feels to God. You might say that he railed against the wicked in prayer. David's words indeed are harsh. Um, And in seeing David's prayer here, we can see that when we see great injustices in the world, there is one to whom we can bring our complaints and our cries to who will hear us. You know, the world may not listen to what we have to say about these things, But God will always listen. Matt Chandler, writing about not being anxious, wrote, But when we pray, we are worrying at God. We take those anxieties and direct them Godward, taking them to him, placing them before him, and of utmost importance, handing them over. How often is that how we handle these deep aches of our hearts, these longings, when we see injustice, how often is our response to literally worry at God, to to toss them to him? Do we go to God with the worries of injustice? David did. We shouldn't be afraid to cry out to God. And in doing so, we should focus our worries Godward. So as we study this psalm again, You know, I know you guys were so excited last week when I mentioned this. I heard, um, you know, just so many rave reviews about chiastic structure. You know, you could fill a book with how much you guys were thrilled by talking about literary structure. Uh, But it simply means that the main point of this psalm is in the middle. Uh, That's where we see the crescendo here. Now, I do want to mention it's not in every psalm that there's this literary structure. There's lots of other uh, poetic structures that the Hebrew writers used um, but, you know, we see it actually here as well as we saw it in, verse, or in Psalm 4. How the various sections flow and mirror each other. And that at the heart of this psalm, 
the middle portion of this psalm, uh, we find the crescendo. But as we unpack this, I actually want to take some of it out of order. Uh, so we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 and verses 9 through 10 together, uh, because both these sections, David talks about the wicked. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's read verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So first, David in his prayer is rehearsing how God, in his holiness, relates to the wicked. God doesn't delight in the wicked, and evil may not dwell with him. David is describing God's nature here, his, his characteristics. See, God is incompatible with evil. Where God is, evil cannot be. This word dwell that we see uh, in the Hebrew really presents the idea of a visit. The word translated as dwell is most often used to describe a temporary camping in tents. So evil can't even pitch its tent in God's presence. The language David uses is strong, but it is consistent with the fact that God cannot coexist with evil, and that's because God is holy. Let's read verses 9 through 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now, the words of verse 9 to me sound a lot like something uh, we hear Jesus say uh, in Matthew chapter 15. And so we're going to read that here real quick. Uh, Verse 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And he continues in verse 18, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So it's from the heart that these wicked actions come. We call this doctrine total depravity. What is total depravity? Well, this doctrine teaches that the effects of the fall are so serious that they affect the whole person, that every part of a person is tainted with sin. It shows us that we are radically corrupt. Every part of us has been corrupted by sin. And therefore, without the intervention of God's grace, we would have no desire for God at all. This doesn't mean that we are as evil as we could possibly be. Uh, Evil does progress. We do recognize that there have been some people who are more evil than others. And some, in comparison, seem like pretty moralistic good people. But the problem is that because of depravity, because of the corruption of sin, even our good deeds are done because of wrong motives. Because of this, we must recognize that there is nothing that we could do to right the wrong. We see this even in Israel. So speaking of Uh, The ones who are God's chosen people, not even uh, the enemies at this point. They were given the law. uh, But they were given the law not in order for them to correct themselves, 
but rather to show them their need for a savior. Therefore, Israel receiving the law didn't make them any more righteous than any of the nations that surrounded Israel. And for us today, having the Bible and having good morals doesn't equal righteousness. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 shows us this. We're going to read a good bit of verses here. Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul in Romans 3 is addressing Israel. Yet his words here, their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You would think he was talking about somebody else. Some idol worshipers or something. Paul in this is quoting from a number of Old Testament passages to make his argument, including our chapter, Psalm 5 today, that we've read. And his point is to show that both Gentiles and Jews are born under the curse of sin. There is no one who is righteous, not one. And no one is even pursuing it. So here we find our problem as well. Because this describes us. It's not just describing some wicked enemies out there somewhere, you know, like in the corner of our mind, just, you know, they're just somewhere off in the fringes, those other people. This is talking about us. These aren't just some wicked people harassing God's people. We are all in the same boat. We're included, this, we're included in this when Paul says none are righteous. And so we need a righteousness that is not our own. David sees his enemies, sees their wickedness. He draws a line from the heart to their wicked deeds. He sees God in his holiness and understands that wickedness cannot dwell or even pitch a tent in God's presence. And this is the basis for his prayer and for his request. It's not simply that David wants his enemies destroyed. Yes, there is that. But in doing so, in praying these words, he declares the inevitable result of wickedness. The wicked will be destroyed as they crash against a holy God. Because as David says, it's against God that they have set themselves. It's not against David. Verse 10, for they have rebelled against you. So how does David have the confidence to pray these things? Sometimes I don't really feel the confidence in praying that my enemies would be destroyed. (laughs) After all, last week we established that David actually didn't have a righteousness of his own. We've just established that now as well. Even the Apostle Paul who had a pedigree like no other. If you want more of that, you can look throughout the book of Philippians and 1 Corinthians. But 
in the book of Philippians, he counts his righteousness as loss, as rubbish. Well, we find our answer in the center of this psalm, where we find our second point, that God makes righteous. So let's read verses 7 through 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So he knows God's character. He knows his holiness. He knows that evil will not dwell with God. Uh, and I, I have a ESB Bible at home that has been commandeered by my wife, but sometimes I get to read it. Um, it's called the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. And it's got some really good notes in it. It's one of those study Bibles that anytime I'm preparing a message, I always kind of consult that and look through the notes there. Very gospel-centered. Um, and it, in the notes it says this. Uh, this would not be only a comfort to David regarding his enemies, but also an indictment of David himself, but for one thing. David does not enter into fellowship with God through his own uprightness. So where does David's confidence lie? Well, it's not with his own worthiness. It's not with his own uprightness. It's not his deeds. It's in God's steadfast love that he will enter into his presence. It's God's mercy and God's grace. It's not David's merit. It's God. It's what God has blessed him with. And this phrase, steadfast love, is very important. And it's actually very important all throughout Scripture. It really is the heart of all of what we're talking about this morning. This is the promise that David is clinging to. This phrase, steadfast love, is one word in the Hebrew. And I did not take Hebrew, so my pronunciation is at best terrible. Uh, But it's the word chesed. It means a loyal love. A committed love. It's God's commitment towards his people. Psalm 118.1, a verse that we're probably familiar with, one that's repeated throughout the Psalms, says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We see in this God's commitment to his people. His love is loyal and steadfast, and it endures forever. And this love is later realized when Jesus comes as the embodiment of this loyal love. His death, burial, and resurrection prove that his love is fully committed and fully loyal to his people. It's through believing this good news that we have the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God. We have relationship with him through the redemptive work of Jesus. And so it's through God's mercy and grace the righteousness that we could never have in and of ourselves, the righteousness that God has clothed us in, Christ's righteousness, he's given this to us, and it's through that that he has invited us into his house, into his family. And it's that that gives David confidence. Though David um, doesn't know Jesus by name, he doesn't know David or Jesus, you know, his face, it's years to come. You know, he's looking forward. He's looking towards this promise. He knows that the promised Redeemer is coming. And it's that steadfast love that he's put his confidence and his trust in. And so God has made him righteous. David trusted that God's final word would not be judgment, but rather redemption. 
God's holiness is sinful humanity's greatest problem. And at the same time, it is hope for the one who trusts in God. What God's holiness demanded, God provided to his children. The holy judge is also the holy one who redeemed us in Christ. We again turn to the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, continuing on, uh, looking at verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is the just and the justifier. In his holiness, the demand was set, and then he redeemed us by the blood of Christ. The punishment for the transgression has been paid. And we who have faith in Jesus, though we were wicked, have been made the righteousness of God, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the perfect sacrifice. And so we rejoice in this today. Uh, David, looking towards this, rejoiced as well as we'll see in verses 11 and 12. And one of the things that's really clear in the Psalms is that most of the time, with the exception of Psalm 88, which is kind of a tricky one, but we'll get there. Ten years for that one. (laughs) Promise you, at least, maybe. There's always a response of joy. There's always a response of praise. Whether it's a psalm of lament whether it's a psalm where David or other writers are surrounded by their enemies, there is reason to rejoice and to sing and to praise. And so our third point this morning is the righteous rejoice. Let's read 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. In the last two verses, David closes with this prayer. Uh, He closes this prayer with a joyful response and a request for protection. So in verse 11, uh, David talks about this idea of refuge. We saw that first in Psalm 2. Um, It is a continuing theme throughout the Psalms. We'll see that more. Um, It speaks of fleeing to a fortress or a place of security in time of trouble. And again guys are probably prepared for this at this point. Um, But I can't help but think of Lord of the Rings. And especially, again, the two towers, which we referenced last week, uh, where the people of Rohan flee to their refuge, Helm's Deep. And the idea of refuge, again, is to seek protection in something outside of yourself. It's to recognize that in you, you don't have what it takes, and so you seek refuge in someone or something else. Jesus is our refuge. Uh, you know, thinking of this, Moses, when he wants to see God, God tells him, go into the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by. And as I pass by, you can look upon me. Uh, you can see my back. But it's a refuge. He puts him in the cleft of the rock and covers him. 
And in Isaiah, there's also a scene that uh, Isaiah recognizes that he's unworthy, that he's not holy. And so he seeks something outside of himself. Uh, the angel tells him to put the coal to his lips. And, and he can see God. He can be in his presence. So there's this idea of seeking refuge in something outside of ourselves. The people of Rohan fled to Helm's Deep because it was an impenetrable fortress. Those who have experienced the loyal, steadfast love of God, his commitment to his people, are assured that he will protect them. He is our refuge in time of need. And so David's response and the response of those who have found refuge in Christ is one of praise. It is a response of joy and song because of God's love. So then David requests that God would spread his protection over them. Uh, Literally, it means to cover over. His plea is to be kept by God's power. He continues, those who love your name. God's name represents his reputation and character. And this is part of God's commitment to his people. For his namesake. In verse 12, the psalmist says, You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David looks to the holy king who will judge the wicked, and he will cover his children. The idea of blessing is the idea of being satisfied. It literally means to be happy, to prosper. But this doesn't speak of financial prosperity like I talked about last week, uh, though at times God does bless his people that way as well. But we see that despite his circumstances, David's soul is prospering, which is far more important. David can rest knowing that God is in control. And in this, David even experiences peace and joy despite the outward circumstances. Despite the enemies on all sides. And like David, we too can count on our Savior. We can count on him for his protection. Because God has covered us with favor as a shield. This shield is a large full body shield known as a standing shield. It's not an infantry soldier's uh, shield that would be more of like a circle or of a small thing. This is like a full body shield. And I'm trusting that it's probably taller than Mike because you're going to want something taller than me to be your full body shield. (laughs) Ultimately, this protection and covering are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, the one who uh, is trusting in that, the one who's trusting in Christ, is covered and protected, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who is our shield. To sum this all up, let's read in Romans 8, 31 through 39. And if, I don't know about you, but in the, I don't know what translation you have, but in the ESV over this section, it says uh, something about God's everlasting love there. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, I don't want to assume that anybody who's here, uh, that all of you are all believers. I mean, I know most of you well. Uh, But I just want to mention this. If you have not known the everlasting love of God, I want to invite you this morning to trust in Christ, to believe in what he has done for you. He has loved you. He has died in your place and has risen again, making complete atonement for your sin. And as the word said there in Romans 8, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so your sin can be forgiven today. Let us rejoice today.